This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi and welcome to Health Check. I'm your host, Joyce Teo. We're starting the year with an episode on ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and a toast to mental health because there is no health without mental health. So ADHD is a common neurodevelopmental condition. It is characterized by inattention and hyperactive impulsive behavior. While this condition can greatly affect one's life, it can also be a superpower if managed correctly. The key is to learn how to use it to your advantage. So today we're welcoming back Moon Lake Lee, the founder of Unlocking ADHD, the first site in Singapore that aims to help individuals with ADHD and their families live life to the fullest. We had her on episode 70 when she first founded Unlocking ADHD, and it's been slightly more than two years now. Hi, Malik. Welcome back to Health Check. It's been two years since you started Unlocking ADHD, right? Congratulations. So tell us about your biggest achievement so far. That's an interesting question because we always want to overdo things and we want to share about what we do. Um, I think the biggest achievement really is the fact that as of today, there's about 4,000 fewer people who feel lonely and unsupported on their ADHD journey. You know, that's our online community. And beyond that, the fact that the word ADHD has been talked about by government ministers, even the president, the former president of Singapore, is something beyond our wildest dreams. That's amazing, right? Because that's the point of like doing this thing, to raise awareness in a Absolutely, sense. Absolutely, yes. So what's been the biggest challenge? There have been many challenges and I honestly have never done something as difficult as this. I've never felt so many times as low right. in terms of energy, you know, mentally and emotionally. I think for me, the biggest challenge is to make sure that I pace myself. Self-care is so important because the last two years, I've been working about 80 to 85 hours a week, almost nonstop. There's a lot of work to do, and I think that drives me sometimes. But I'm also very clear that I need to do a certain minimum amount of self-care so that I can stay healthy, so I can do more. Um, so sometimes I think I go by the mandate of work hard, play hard. So that's why I'm still doing half marathons, even though a lot slower than before. You know, I try to make sure I spend time with family and exercise and, and have reflection times. That's great. I mean, self-care is for everyone, whether you have ADHD or not, right? That's so important. So Moonlight, you yourself have ADHD. So I wanted to find out from you, I mean, like, you know, in your past two years, how has all this new knowledge on ADHD that you've accumulated changed the way you perceive yourself and how you manage and cope with your ADHD? Well, I think the first thing is I realized that, you know, when I first started this, I thought, okay, I'm more or less quite well-managed. You know, now it's maybe time to you know, put what I learned into practice to also, you know, share so that more people can access whatever I had learned the hard way, you know, to equalize management of ADHD. But as I went along this journey, I realized there were so many blind spots in my own life. And that itself was a very humbling experience. You know, just even, for example, people don't think much about managers, for example, or leaders with ADHD and their working styles. And how is it like to be working with them? you know, as one of the members of the team. Yes, that would be interesting, actually. <laughs> um, so that was something I also learned about how to manage the way I communicate. There's a difference between FYI for your information and FYA for your action. Right. You know, so being very, very intentional, clear, specific. I had to learn the hard way. For example, I tend to be hyperactive and impulsive. And my mind works faster. My RAM just goes crazy. Right? But not everyone is having the same speed right, as myself. So being aware of that more makes me, first of all, 
breathe a little bit, slow down, and then digest out what is the important need to know. Because people sometimes get lost in details. You know, we talk about a wall of text, right? And we don't want that to happen in the workplace. So being very aware of how some of these things could get lost in translation, I think it's one of the important things I learned as well. Well, in the past, I'm one of those very collaborative type of people in terms of styles. So I would like to talk with my team, share with them what I found out. Again, I realize now it's the impulsivity part too. But not everyone can take that. Sometimes they say TMI, right? Too much information. And I didn't realize because um, professionally, I grew up in North America. And it's a very different way of working. So locally, I think when you're working with some of the team members and they're used to receiving instructions. So it's almost like everyone is there with a notepad and a pen ready to write whatever you say. And a lot of what I say is giving context sometimes, right? <laughs> you know, it may not be the ac actual action right. item. And then I realized sometimes people get ready to run and actually they didn't need to. So that might stress them out a little bit more, right, than was originally intended. So it's really, it's this journey is, there's so much to learn. I see. How about the other way around, like, you know, do you have any tips for managing employees with ADHD? I think the first thing is to try to remember that they are trying very hard. And one of the things we realize that for those with ADHD, it's not that they are unmotivated or that they don't care. People really try hard, sometimes three times harder, just to be at a similar level. So it's to be able to recognize and appreciate and affirm that. That's number one. But number two, being able to go beyond some of the issues that might crop out and be a distraction to see what is that person's interest what is their strength? Because the ADHD wiring is very much interest and novelty-based. And if we can link that with their strength, they can really thrive. And then for other things that they're struggling with, if it's not so critical, can we find a way to support them? Maybe get that delegated out to somebody else. Then we can really, really maximize what they can do. Mm, right. That needs a bit of patience and interest, I guess. Yeah. Um, so what have you learned about the public's perception of people with ADHD? I think that, first of all, there's very little awareness. But secondly, for those that may have heard of it, it's normally associated with children, particularly little boys. So, you know, we've done a couple of talks where we have word clouds and people type in the first thing that comes in their head. And usually things like naughty, active, bad, um, lazy, all, all those really negative kind of words. Yeah. And I think we need to also flip it around. You know, there are other ways to think about ADHD that are more affirming and more positive. And I think one of the best descriptions I've heard is that the ADHD wiring is like a Ferrari engine with bicycle brakes. Yes, I've read that. I, I yes, like and, that and I like that because it's a very strength-based understanding. The Ferrari engine, the horsepower is there, it's strong. But the regulation part, you know, the brakes could do with some work. So that's what we're trying to do here strengthen the bricks. But how do you think you can, you know, help improve the public understanding of this condition? One of the things is really being on a show like this, right? That's the first level. But second level is also beyond just hearing about it on a superficial level, having conversations about it. So if they have ADHD or the child has ADHD, to talk about it. Because a lot of people still feel a bit embarrassed. Maybe it's a stigma. They feel shy. They're not sure how it's going to be responded to. Mm -hmm. uh, so... I think what starts first is that initial conversation, being open about it. Right. And then more people will be aware that, you know, actually even adults have it, women have it, men have it. Exactly. Right? And you know Not what? Not just children. When more people share about it, then you say, hey, I can relate to that person. It's that person next door. And then it becomes less of a, ooh, that's weird person or whatever, right? It's someone that is it's just like our friend. 
Right, right. It's know? the same with, you know, other mental uh, conditions absolutely. as well. Yeah. Right. So, you know, let's talk about ADHD and how can people tell, right? If you Google it online, you know, you see the key symptoms and right? one of it is inattention. I mean, there's also hyperactivity. So, you know, how do you tell if a person has ADHD? Okay, I'm going to be sharing from a lived experience, right? Okay. I'm no expert in this. But one of the things that's very common is the emotional side. You know, some people say it's high highs and low lows. Okay, I am blessed because I don't really have too many low lows. I definitely have high highs. So I'm excitable. Right. Okay. Um, and in recent years, the DSM-5, which is that manual to diagnose ADHD, they've actually taken the emotional part out of the diagnosis checklist. But in the past, it was there. And I think actually the emotional part is one of the telltale signs. But secondly, and I joke about this, right? I look at people's LinkedIn profiles. Okay, because for some of the ADHDs, and again, it's a bell curve, Mm -hmm. you know, there's two ends of the curve. At one end is what I call the twice exceptionals, those who are gifted, whether it's intellectually, sports, artistically, or so on. These guys who are ADHDs happen to, because of their internal wiring, IQ, or support systems, actually do quite well in society. But if you look at their LinkedIn, they're all over the place. So I used to joke that if anyone looked at my LinkedIn, I'll be a recruiter's nightmare. They wouldn't know where to place me. Because I've been in several different industries, different countries, right? Like, what the heck does a woman want to do, right? So I think that makes a person interesting. And many ADHDs have a lot of interests. Mm. They move from one to the other, just like hobbies. So you will see certain aspects of that. If you see someone's LinkedIn having too big a variation, you know, that may be one clue. But again, this is more for those who are on the twice exceptional side. Because we know that the other end of that scale... You know, we know that up to 20% of those with ADHD do end up in prison, right? So we also want to do something about that group there. Mm. Okay, there are some people who just walk around, you know, they have ADHD, but they have no idea, even though they have Googled the symptoms. Yeah, so the interesting thing is this. We don't really have much research in Singapore, but in the US, Dr. Russell Barkley, who's one of the gurus in ADHD, his research on adults with ADHD showed that up to 80% of adults with ADHD don't know that they have ADHD. Oh, it's a very high number, right? It is very high. So the thing is, if you don't know what you have, mm-hmm. but you're experiencing the symptoms, it's actually a very tough position because you can't even do anything about it. And, you know, one of the things that Unlocking ADHD is trying to do, the problem statement, is the fact that the symptoms of ADHD cause impaired relationships and mm-hmm. underperformance in school, work and life, leading to lost potential. So there's a whole bunch of people out there that may be struggling without being able to pinpoint what is the reason. Mm, right. But even if you know that, you you know, you may not want to get help, right? Say if you're an adult, actually. I mean, for kids, maybe that's a different case, right? So if you're an adult, say you're, I don't know, 30, 50, 70, I mean, you may not want to be on medication. Well, I think for myself, you know, I was diagnosed when I was 50. Some people will think that, you know, if you've really made it so far, right, why now? Yeah. You know, and for me, I realized because I kept on getting to this pattern of biting off more than I can chew. I'm still doing it right now, by the way, right? (laughs) You know, so being able to get some help, not just medication, but in terms of being able to accept myself, but also being mindful of what I commit myself to and what I don't commit myself to, that really helps me manage this. And my husband always jokes, you know, this month we'll be married 31 years, right? So he always says he's been long-suffering with me. I said, hello, friend. It's the other way around, right? But whatever it is, you know, he says, look, even if you think you can survive well not being diagnosed formally, he said, think about the people around you. For goodness sake, do it for their sake, right? (laughs) That's what he would say. So, you know, even if you think you're coping well, what if you could cope even better? 
<clears throat> and what about those around you again? So how would you describe your experience, say, you know, before you were diagnosed and after you were diagnosed? About diagnosis? four years, oh. you know, since I was diagnosed. My perspective has changed. I think I am more self-forgiving, number one. Number two, I know myself better. I was really plagued with a tremendous sense of lack of self-awareness all these years growing up, whether it's career choices or, you know, the, the things that I did. And knowing myself better means that I can actually sort of steer myself a little bit more gently to a better pathway. And that's important. That's to, really important. To do the things that you're interested in and not those that you're not interested in, maybe. Um, for example, I could have saved myself a lot of heartache, you know, emotional distress, even career, like, you know, limbo, if I knew myself better and what works with my wiring. So now that I am more cognizant of that, my life choices can be better informed. And right. then the outcomes can be better. Just to give you an example, again, as I mentioned, I tend to be hyperactive impulsive. So having a career as a tax lawyer, the prospect of being made a tax partner in a law firm with years and years of Income Tax Act review mm -hmm. is not exciting. It actually is painful. Right. Right. So I could have saved myself in some aspects. If I'd known, for example, you know, I need to move around, I need new experiences, right? I should have gone to business mm. or something, you know, entrepreneurial that I might have done better in, which I'm sort of doing in a way, you know, with a charity, like every single day is going to be different, you know, and that energizes me and the people I meet. But what if I had done it earlier, right? A few decades earlier, what would life be like? And that's why, you know, for Unlocking ADHD, we're also reaching out not just to youth, but adults, because it's never too late for a diagnosis. My uncle just got diagnosed in his 80s, right? But we're seeing people who are being diagnosed in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and we're living longer lives. Why, that's true. We can do a lot of things. Tell us about your uncle then. In his 80s, right? Why would he want to be diagnosed? I don't think he wanted to be diagnosed per se, <laughs> okay. but, you know, there were issues in his life where he was a bit inattentive. That was worrying his family, right? And we do know from research that actually there's a genetic component to ADHD. So the chances are that if a child has ADHD, one or two parents or a sibling might have it. And it's important for people to realize that. Because it's not just focusing on the child or the person with ADHD. It's to reflect and see whether maybe one or two parents has it. Because a parent that is unaware and unregulated is going to have a very low chance of consistently supporting the child. So we like to use the analogy of the airplane safety video. You know, the oxygen mask on yourself and then on the child. So it really is a 360-degree approach. Take care of yourself first before your child. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah, and then how's your daughter doing, by the way? I mean, she's actually studying in the UK right now, right? So she can't join us today, but she has ADHD. It's been a, how many years since she's been diagnosed? And um, she's she was in... diagnosed a year before me um, in late 2018. I think the journey really has opened up a lot of opportunities for her, which is why I launched Unlocking ADHD. Because when she was diagnosed at the end of Sec 3, you know, she was a 36-pointer. That means that she failed five out of eight subjects, almost retained. But barely three years later, she got into a prestigious UK university doing a very, very difficult professional degree. She's studying dentistry, right? This is not your typical background of someone who's doing one of these very competitive fields. But it doesn't mean that it's a fairy tale ending. It's still like a five-year program. There are challenges, but I think the key thing for us, though, is that the opportunities opened up. And that's what we're trying to do, not just for the youth but and children, but also for the adults. Right. That, that's amazing, actually, right? For yeah. a 36-pointer to a dentistry degree. Well, um, it is a long degree, so we hope that she can also finish it. Because unfortunately, the data also does show that many of the youth with ADHD 
the college dropout rate is higher. So it's so important that they also are supported when they are in university because what we're finding is that there's a lot more support in the primary and maybe even secondary school stage. But once people go into the Institute of Higher Learning, university, workplace, because of lack of awareness, the supports drop off. And that's where we need it too. Right. And ultimately, we want to get people to a stage of self-management. And you can't manage yourself until you know more about the condition. And beyond knowing more, it's actually doing something about it. That means actually embracing it, accepting it. Right. And learning how to cope with it, I guess there should be some management skills, planning your life, etc. Yes. In fact, you know, yesterday when I was running, as part of my you know, daily exercise routine, I was listening to a video broadcast by Dr. Barkley again. And he said one of the best things that parents can do for their children is actually to... Pretend that you're a scientist, a researcher, right? And get to know as much as you can about the condition so that you can arm yourself with customized strategies for your child. If parents just send them to the doctor to get medication or to a therapist and they don't really get involved in understanding and supporting, it's not going to be that effective in the long run. That's interesting, especially if the parent has ADHD without knowing it. It's a double whammy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's going to be worse, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> I've read like there are new treatments for ADHD and you can actually just play a game. You don't need to be on medication. Do you have any information on all these? I think ultimately the most important is to really have that clarity first on whether one has ADHD or not. Mm -hmm. Okay, because you know, with a diagnosis, uh, for those who need to access medication, they can do that. Even if you suspect you have, but you don't have that formal diagnosis, you can't access medication. And medication, at least based on the data, shows it's about 70-80% effectiveness rate. So, mm. you know, if people don't go for that diagnosis, they're already cutting off one avenue that works very well. But medication alone is not the only solution. We always say pills don't teach skills. So therapy is part of it. Coaching is part of it. So actually, I try to walk the talk. So I actually see a therapist regularly and she just happens to be an ADHD coach as well. Oh, I see. But where do you find all these people then in Singapore? Um, there are people in Singapore, not many of them. In fact, one of my dreams actually is to try to, you know, the next couple of years, create an ecosystem where we can have a supply of trained ADHD coaches to work alongside families, youth and adults to help support them. Along the be. journey. And then beyond that, not just the coaches, but to train more people in the community so that they can be peer supporters. And so that's one of the exciting things I wanted to share with you because, um, you know, in 2024, um, we are collaborating with another charity, an IPC charity called Resilience Collective. Uh, we're going to be doing the first ADHD youth and adult support group in Singapore. I see. That's interesting. It I is. mean, I actually had them on my podcast recently. That's wonderful. Yes, because Resilience Collective, you know, they're focused on mental health. Right, trying to promote mental well-being among youth and adults, but they wanted to look into condition-specific peer support. Mm. Okay, and we were looking, of course, to do that. But being a very young organization, we're two years old. Partnering with Resilience Collective enables to piggyback on some of the best practices and the structures, but modify it specifically for the community that we serve. For our particular group is um, youth and adults, so we're actually launching the second pilot in January. And we're hoping to scale it the next two years, starting in April. So we've applied for funding for that. The other thing is that um, we're also trying to have this partnership with international experts 
but also um, collaborating with local experts. So to really get the best practices internationally because they see more cases, but those international cases may not have the local nuance Mm and the culture. So we're trying to really combine these two so that we can create our own solutions based on the best practices. So we're launching in January 2024 with a two-part webinar on ADHD medication. We're partnering Dr. Dan Shapiro, a very renowned pediatrician. He specializes in children with developmental and behavioral issues with two local psychiatrists, one from private practice and one from IMH. So we hope that this will be the start of many other fruitful collaborations. It sounds interesting and that's free, isn't it? It's free. Um, you know, we do incur costs to do these kind of events, but you know, my heart really is to make things accessible for people. So you know, we have been very fortunate. We found a corporate sponsor for this one, but we hope that for the other ones that we want to do in 2024, that more companies can step up. You know, we've been having some really good experiences about ADHD in the workplace. We've gone to speak with some of the banks and some of the other companies. Uh, the most recent was Visa, actually. And uh, about 200 people attended. Hybrid, regional, you know, part in person and part online. That's quite a lot, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, earlier we talked about, you know, how to identify somebody with ADHD. Right? I mean, it just came to my mind, like, you know, in this today's world, right, with social media and everybody getting distracted, a lot of people might think that, they have ADHD or the parents might think that their child has ADHD, but that might not be the case, right? I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Well, one thing we do know that the traits of ADHD are not exclusive to those ADHD. They're actually very common, okay? So, so common, in fact, that one of the gurus for ADHD, Dr. Edward Hallowell, wanted to rename ADHD to something called VAST, V-A-S-T, Variable Attention Stimulus Trait. It's a bit of a mouthful, but the reason for doing that is, number one, to take the stigma out of it so that more people could get help. So again, a lot of people would have traits, but where it crosses the clinical line, you know, where it becomes a clinical condition, is the extent of the impairment in one's life. How long has it been present? Right now, we're looking at it being present um, prior to the age of 12. So the impairment is going to be a different level altogether. So that means you must have noticed all the symptoms when the person is a child. Yeah, so that's why, you know, in Singapore now, if you were to go for an initial diagnosis, they usually ask you to bring your school report books. Mm. A bit of a challenge for people who are older like me, right, who moved around countries, but bring a report book and also bring a family member who has known you when you were younger. So that is the supporting or corroborating um, information for the diagnosis. Right, and not something that's transient. You know, one of the things that we're trying to do is really to um, promote more awareness about ADHD. And to that end, we actually have something called Restart, which is an ADHD starter kit. So it basically is like a roadmap. And within Restart, we have a self-test. You know, the WHO standard for adults. So if you do the test and you score pretty high marks on that, and it's free, by the way, um, you can print that out and bring it to a psychiatrist for a diagnosis. The other thing that I wanted to share is that, um, you know, we did a survey about two years ago of the ADHD community. It's a ground-out survey. We partnered with another charity called Spark in this ADHD space. And in one month, we had almost 600 people respond to the survey. And we're using the data from this to engage with different ministries, different charities, so that we can really get a whole community approach to addressing ADHD because it is a lifespan issue. Right. So what are the main points? Can you sum it up for us? Main points is that for people with ADHD, they normally have one or more other conditions. Most common being on the mental health side, anxiety and depression. On the learning side, dyslexia, autism spectrum disorder. The second point that we noted was that almost 70% of the children with ADHD had trouble progressing in school. 
about 40% of the adults had trouble maintaining a job. And these are the people who diagnosed ADHD or without? It was those who were diagnosed and those who were symptomatic. Okay, and we also found that in households, about 79% of the adults found that there were conflicts or ADHD negatively affected the home life. We know that there's data out there that shows about three times higher divorce rate as well. And then there's also a lot of parent-child conflicts, power struggles. So there's a lot more than meets the eye for ADHD. It's not just an educational issue. It's not just a health or mental health issue. It's a society issue. Right. But would you say it's a condition that you can actually manage on your own? Well, the good, news, the good news is that ADHD is one of the most treatable conditions, whether it's through medication, therapy, coaching, lifestyle changes, you know, support groups. We can do something about it, and that's why people can thrive. And that's right. the good news. Right, and I've read it's a superpower. There are aspects of it that can be superpower, but I think it's a little bit too simple to say it's a superpower because there are <laughs> a lot of challenges. Um, but I think, again, you know, having the, I guess, the proper perspective on it you know, being aware of some of the issues and then addressing those, but also leveraging on the strengths and interests, right? I think that's how people can thrive. Right. Okay. I think for children, it will be very helpful to think of it as a superpower and learning to harness it. Yeah. So talking about superpower, a lot of people might be um, familiar with Percy Jackson. And the author of Percy Jackson, his kid has ADHD. So he purposely wrote the characters in there you know, with ADHD, dyslexia, and so on. And the author of Captain Underpants yes. has ADHD. Yes. Okay, What's so... What's his name again? Dolph, Dolph something, okay. <laughs> but, you know, even in Singapore, right, we have Jack Sim, who's known as a Toilet King, founder of the World Toilet Organization. Jack is quite open about having ADHD. And look at how he's put Singapore on the map. Who would think, right, that when I grow up, I want to be the founder of the World Toilet Organization? <laughs> but he's changing the sanitation standards, right, of other countries in the world. Amazing. Right. So that is one example. Given the right support on the environment, it's amazing what can happen. Right. You also mentioned, I mean, it's a societal issue. I mean, what, are, what do you think are some of the things that can be done? I think the way to address ADHD is, number one, through awareness. But number two is to really have the support structures, whether it's in terms of more inclusive workplaces, is knowing how to support people in the way that they should be supported. In schools, same thing, the accommodations. You know, right now, for example, if you have ADHD, you could get extra time in exams, right? But do people know how to use extra time wisely? No, we have to think beyond the obvious. Secondly, right now um, in Singapore, if you did have accommodations during exams, there's an asterisk on your certificate. So some parents actually choose not to declare that the child is ADHD because they don't want the asterisks there because they fear about discrimination down the road. But what I always share with parents that come to me with that, I will say, look, we know for a fact that if your kid has accommodations, they will do better. You're helping them do the best, leveling the playing field here, right? By not having the accommodation, you're not giving them the right footage. So they probably won't do as well as they could have. And this will impact them even more. So work with what you know in front of you, the facts, rather than something that's intangible, that is speculative, right? right? We can only make the best decisions based on what we know, mm. not what we think may happen since COVID. Globally, more and more women are coming forward to be diagnosed because um, women tend to have the inattentive type of ADHD, which is not disruptive externally. And women um, tend to mask things better. But when all our usual systems and routines fell apart during COVID, 
That's where there were more women being diagnosed. And the double whammy is that women also have hormonal issues, right? Whether it's in puberty, pregnancy, or menopause. And these also impact the way they cope and also impact the symptoms showing up in their lives. That means more adult women are getting diagnosed. And uh, we're finding that even for someone that has been diagnosed and that's taking medication, one of the things I've learned along the way is that when one has the monthly menstruation, the effect of the medication at the same dosage is much less. So you actually have to take a little bit more to top up. So that means that psychoeducation, learning more about psychology and about medication, we are still a long way to go. And that's what Unlocking ADHD is trying to do as well. A lot of people are fearful about ADHD medication. They are fearful about addictions. And there's data and research to show that ADHD medication is not addictive. In fact, anecdotally, if you ask people with ADHD, many of them forget to take their medication. Mm. I mean, just earlier today, right? I said I couldn't remember whether I took it or not, right? Mm. So if something's addictive, you will not forget to take it. That's number one. So think of it sort of almost like wearing a pair of glasses. You know, you can see better once you wear it, but when you take it off, you're back to square one. Right. That's how the medication works. Secondly, when parents are fearful of medication or even testing it and they make it like a last resort, what they're doing without realizing it is they're impacting the child's ability to learn. Because the longer it takes for them to be, you know, able to wear those glasses, right, to learn and absorb better, the further behind they are. And as they grow up, you know, with hormones and puberty, then it gets harder and harder to introduce new things to them. The opposition, the resistance is there. Right. So this is something that we don't think about. So I, I think a lot more needs to be done, conversations like this, to let people see things from a different perspective. There's something called a medication trial. You don't have to commit for life. Take it for that two weeks, one month, whatever, right? And the other thing that people don't realize is that ADHD medication is not like a Panadol or antibiotic. You don't take it and you wax everything away. It's actually a process of trial and error to find the right dosage and the right type of medication. And people need to be informed. Otherwise, they will say it doesn't work and they give up early. So all these important conversations and topics need to be discussed more publicly. That's why next month in January, we're doing a two-session segment on ADHD medication to address this. That's interesting. So what's the date again for the webinar? Um, It's going to be January the 22nd and January the 30th. It's going to be from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. and it's free, but you do need to sign up for each segment. And uh, again, we're having Dr. Dan Shapiro from the U.S. and two of our local specialist psychiatrists here. So for listeners who are interested, do sign up, right? And also for Unlocking ADHD, you do have other webinars as well, right? Yes, Throughout we, the year. Yes, we were going to be having more um, programming you know, for people to learn how to cope with life better. And some of the upcoming ones, you know, just to give you a preview, right? we're trying to do something on financial management. Because you know, a lot of people struggle with managing finances. We're going to do something on relationships, but this time from the perspective of the non-ADHD partner. Right. Okay. And then you know, something else well on careers. How do ADHDs figure out what career suits them? How do they cope in the workplace? So these are all coming up. So we're going to end the podcast and I'll ask you one last question only. So what's the one thing that people should know about individuals with ADHD? That ADHD is an explanation not an excuse. Right. Thanks a lot for your time, Mulek. That was amazing, yeah. Well, that's a wrap for Health Check, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Joyce Teo. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. 
If you'd like to read my articles, we have links in the podcast text description below. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or within our Straits Times app. Thanks for listening.